Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. I've enjoyed reading comic books since I was a teenager, and one of my favorite series of all time was Neil Gaiman's Sandman. And in that comic, the main character, his name's Morpheus, he's a Lord of Dreams, it's not really important, um, he travels through time and space meeting unusual people, demons, evil and benevolent gods, and sundry strange mortals. In one of the issues of Sandman, uh, Morpheus, he meets a man in 1860s San Francisco wearing what looks to be a tattered uniform reminiscent of European nobility. The raggedy man whom Morpheus meets styles himself as Norton I, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, and is presented as a whimsical but also tragic figure, a delusional man with great aspirations of emperorhood, but who is merely humored by those around him. And when I read this comic, I thought, well, that's sort of weird, and kept reading. And sometime later, I found out that this man, Emperor Norton I of the United States, and Protector of Mexico, was in fact a real person. He hadn't just been made up for the weird goth comic I'd been reading. He was an actual person in San Francisco, and most San Franciscans have heard of the benevolent monarch that once walked their streets. He was born in England, uh, sometime between 1817 and 1818, we're not sure, as Joshua Abraham Norton, and he started out as a somewhat wealthy merchant. He lived for a good chunk of his early life in South Africa, and then inherited a substantial fortune from his father, and he set out from San Francisco and intended to make an even bigger and more substantial fortune in South America. His plan was to make a mint speculating on Peruvian rice. That did not work out. He lost nearly all of his money due to speculation. Joshua Abraham Norton returned to San Francisco, not as a broken commodities speculator, though. No, he seems to have either had a moment of clarity or enlightenment or cracking up, because after he came back on September 17th, 1859, he made a decree. Quote, at the peremptory request and desire of a large majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and now of the last nine years and ten months past of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself Emperor of these United States, and in virtue of the authority thereby in me vested, do hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the Union to assemble in musical hall of this city on the first day of February next, then and there to make such alterations in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate the evils under which the country is laboring, and thereby cause confidence to exist both at home and abroad in our stability and integrity. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why is Norton I someone that anyone still talks about anymore? He seems to be a crazy man who lost all of his money and said that he was an emperor. There are lots of crazy people out there who say there are things that they are not. I work in downtown Portland and in Old Town. I see people all the time who seem to think that they're someone they're not, or who are talking to imaginary friends, or imaginary enemies or who will tell you about all their new ideas about how they can fix society and the economy and everything, or conspiracy theories. Those are always fun. What's truly significant about Emperor Norton, though, is not that he was a crazy person in an unusual hat, but that he was a beloved crazy person in an unusual hat. 
Remember when I mentioned that he walked around in a fanciful uniform, reminiscent of European royalty with epaulets and medals and such on it? The city gave him that. That uniform wasn't something that he found or made himself. People actually really got to like this guy who had declared himself to be emperor, and they gave him raiment befitting of his office. They wanted him to look the part. Also, he issued his own currency. And this currency that he issued, that did have his face on it and said that it was legal tender in all of these United States, it wasn't just weird little handwritten bills that he handed out to people. No, these were things that he had printed up that San Franciscans carried with them, and various vendors in the city actually honored them. Now, granted, the status of legal tender and money and whatnot in the late 1800s, and especially in the West, was different than it was now, and this really isn't all that weird. You know, money, after all, it's just a collective delusion, man. There is a tribe in the Pacific Ocean that uses giant circular rocks as money. But still, you try issuing your own currency. See how well it works out. And as I've been reading about this guy, I think I get it. I think I understand why San Francisco has such fond memories of this man. Here's one of his proclamations from 1869. Norton I, de gratia, so he's saying Norton I, by the grace of God, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, being desirous of allying the dissensions of party strife, now existing within our realm, do hereby dissolve and abolish the Democratic and Republican parties, and also do hereby decree disenfranchisement and imprisonment for not more than ten nor less than five years to all persons leading to any violation of the imperial decree. So what he's saying there is that because party strife is so terrible and politics are awful, that he's going to abolish the Democratic and Republican parties and jail anyone who says they're a member. Think about that from the perspective of a bunch of people in San Francisco in 1869. Imagine a few sailors or miners hanging out in an old-timey saloon, and a man in a fancy coat starts talking in fancy language. He says, guys, let's throw the bastards out. There we go. Let's erase it all and make me emperor. And I could see how that sort of theatricality would have a certain sort of appeal. If I was sitting at a bar and Norton came in and read his proclamation aloud, I'd probably say huzzah and raise my glass to him. And I don't even like monarchs. I hate monarchy. I'd make an exception for Norton, though. His decrees were common and were popular reading and oftentimes reprinted in various San Franciscan newspapers at the time. It's worth noting, though, that a fair amount of the decrees ascribed to him are probably fakes and pranks that were written by other columnists and pranksters in San Francisco at the time and afterward. Um, one website that's called the Virtual Museum of the City of San Francisco has collected those they believe are genuine decrees, including the one I just read, and his most famous decrees to build a bridge from San Francisco to Oakland. And I say decrees because his first decree to build a bridge from San Francisco to Oakland didn't take, so he made a second decree about the construction of a bay bridge that went like this. Whereas we issued our decree ordering the citizens of San Francisco and Oakland to appropriate funds for the survey of a suspension bridge from Oakland Point via Goat Island 
also for a tunnel and to ascertain which is the best project and whereas the said citizens have hitherto neglected to notice our said decree and whereas we are determined our authority shall be fully respected. Now, therefore, we do hereby command the arrest by the army of both the boards of the city fathers if they persist in neglecting our decrees. Given under our royal hand and seal at San Francisco this 17th day of September, 1872. Emperor Norton was really big on getting that bridge built, guys. The Bay Bridge is now associated with him, and a lot of people will say, hey, his big accomplishment was decreeing that the Bay Bridge be built. Or they'll say, hey, it was Emperor Norton who had the idea that we build the Bay Bridge. I've been to San Francisco several times, and you don't have to be a genius to look at the Bay and think, a bridge should go there, between San Francisco and Oakland. The Bay Bridge is a fairly obvious, you know, bridge-building place. Also, there apparently were preliminary plans being laid for the bridge before Norton made his proclamation. But nevertheless, San Francisco's second most famous bridge, every so often, is the subject of a renaming campaign. On several occasions, people in San Francisco have started petitions, letter-writing campaigns, and other sort of grassroots movement things to get that thing renamed as the Emperor Norton I Bridge. I would be totally fine with that. If they wanted to rename that bridge after an eccentric dude who wore epaulets and made proclamations, that's great. San Francisco, go for it. Do it. I came across another one of Norton's proclamations that I really appreciate, but this is one of those proclamations that I think was probably fake. Like I said, a lot of them could be ascribed to newspaper editorials, pranksters, or other writers trying to imitate his style, but I really, really want this one to be real. It says, Whoever, after due and proper warning, shall be heard to utter the abominable word Frisco, which has no linguistic or other warrant, shall be deemed guilty of a high misdemeanor, and shall pay into the imperial treasury as penalty the sum of $25. Hey, I'm on board with that. Uh, I'm not even from San Francisco, and I know not to say Frisco. Also, Norton's emperorness was noted in the U.S. Census in 1870. In the 1870 census, he listed his occupation as emperor. Someone else noted in the census that he was not eligible to vote by reason of insanity. I'm sure Norton would be fine with that, as emperors are generally above petty democratic things like elections. So, why is Emperor Norton at all important, besides just being a curiosity or a novelty? I am going to get kind of dorky and wonky here, but bear with me. In her seminal book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, Jane Jacobs, who's basically the godmother of modern American urban planning, wrote about a specific kind of sidewalk character that she calls a public character. Jacobs writes, quote, The social structure of sidewalk life hang partly on what can be called self-appointed public characters. A public character is anyone who is in frequent contact with a wide circle of people and who is sufficiently interested to make himself a public character. A public character need have no special talents or wisdom to fulfill his function, although he often does. He just needs to be present, and there need to be enough of his counterparts. His main qualification is that he is public, and that he talks to lots of different people. In this way, news travels that is of sidewalk interest. Unquote. 
According to Jacobs, these public characters, the kind of people whom you see every day on the sidewalk, are essential to urban life. Public characters help spread news throughout the neighborhood, help with social networking, you know, of the people-talking-to-each-other variety, not the online kind, and they provide a point of contact for people in the community. I found a good elaboration on what public characters mean to a community and why they're important in an excellent 1999 book called Sidewalk by Mitchell Dunier, who studied the patterns of sidewalk vendors and other street dwellers in Greenwich Village. Dunier writes, quote, What Jacobs means is that social context of the sidewalk is patterned in a particular way because of the presence of the public character. His or her actions have the effect of making street life safer, stabler, and more predictable. As she goes on to explain, this occurs because the public character has eyes upon the street. Following Jacobs, urban theorists have emphasized what city dwellers in pedestrian areas like Greenwich Village have always known. Sidewalk life is crucial because a sidewalk is a site where a sense of mutual support must be felt among strangers if they are to go about their lives there together. Unlike most places in the United States where people do their errands in cars, the people of Greenwich Village do many, if not most, of their errands by walking. The neighborhood's sidewalk life matters deeply to residents and visitors alike. Jacobs emphasized that social contact on the sidewalks must take place within the context of mutual respect for appropriate limits on interaction and intimacy. This made for interactive pleasantness adding up to an almost unconscious assumption of general street support when the chips are down. So, public characters in the classic sense tend to be people like shopkeepers, bartenders, and -and out-and-about community activists, which is what Jane Jacobs was, And I think that we all know the kind of person that Jacobs is talking about. They have a stake in the community. They're around there. They know people. They spread news. Uh, You feel like you are at home as as opposed to in some uncaring, unfeeling city because of the presence of public characters. They humanize it. Norton, I think, is the embodiment of the guy in the street who's easy to pick out, who knows everybody, who's just kind of around. And he, again, gives the street a certain kind of human quality and warmth that it would not otherwise have. I often work in Portland's downtown, and also Old Town, and there are quite a few people, like street performers, like barflies, like merchants, like service people, whom I see all the time in that neighborhood. And they're distinctive, they're unusual, they are what makes the neighborhood feel lived in and human as opposed to just a collection of buildings. They give it a kind of comfort, they give it character. That, I think, is what Norton gave to San Francisco. He seems to be the kind of animating figure that breathes some strange life into that community for a time. And, side note, there's apparently a guy in San Francisco nowadays who dresses up like Emperor Norton and does historical walking tours in character, and that sounds, frankly, extremely dorky. And I'm totally doing one of those tours the next time in the Bay Area. I have to applaud and patronize that level of whimsical dorkitude. Norton died an old man in the city he reigned over. The San Francisco Chronicle announced his death with a certain degree of solemnity and sadness in January of 1880 with a headline that proclaimed... Le Roy est mort. That's the king is dead in French. Wrote the Chronicle, quote, On the reeking pavement, in the darkness of a moonless night, under the dripping rain, and surrounded by a hastily gathered crowd of wandering strangers, Norton I, by the grace of God, 
Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, departed this life. Other sovereigns have died with no more of kindly care. Other sovereigns have died as they have lived with all the pomp of earthly majesty, but death having touched them. Norton I rises up the exact peer of the haughtiest king or kaiser that ever wore a crown. Unquote. He reigned for 21 years, and his funeral was an enormous procession of 10,000 mourners who came to view his body lying in state, and to say farewell to the man who had, for several years, been the heart and soul of San Francisco streets. Today he is buried in Woodlawn Cemetery, just south of San Francisco, and his gravestone says simply, Norton I, Emperor of the United States, and Protector of Mexico. Interesting Times is a listener-supported podcast, and I would like to thank Sydney and Pete Edland, who actually asked me, hey, Joe, what's the deal with Emperor Norton? And then I said, well, started talking about it and realized that that would be a great episode topic. Thank you very much, Sydney and Pete. We are recorded at the studios of Portland's own X-Ray FM. That's 91.1 and 107.1 in Portland, Oregon. Arthur Rosado is our engineer. Uh, we're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Uh, give us a rating. Give us a review. Please do leave a comment. That helps other people discover the show. I am on Twitter and Tumblr. I'm at Joe Strecker, joestrecker.tumblr.com. All of it. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week.